I, um, good evening. I don't like uh, to typically correct our pastor, but he made fun of me Sunday night. Um, were you here? Raise your hand if you were here on Sunday evening. So he, uh, yeah, that's good. Um, he said uh, that I was going to talk about, and he was impersonating me. He said I was going to talk about the doctrine of God. <laughs> that is not how I talk. And in fact, this is a little bit of a sore subject for me because um, when I was younger, I remember the first time I heard one of my sermons, uh, like the recording of it, it was devastating because um, I assumed when I was at the pulpit, I sounded like Billy Graham. And to my everlasting horror, as you all know uh, quite well by now, I don't sound like Billy Graham. I sounded more like um, uh, an elderly lady from the Midwest at library story time. <laughs> Much more like that than Billy Graham. In fact, uh, when I went to a, um, a preaching workshop a few years ago where I met Steve Lawson, and I told him about this, and I was hoping he would correct me and say, no, you don't sound like an old lady. He didn't correct me at all. He's like, yeah, I understand your problem, as he heard me talking. It was very humiliating. And... Um, and he told me, you know, if, if um, you keep your content good, people will eventually look over that, and I hope they do. But I do not sound like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish I did, if only. Uh, I sound much worse. 2 Corinthians 13, self-deprecating humor is very powerful. I wish I wasn't so terrible at it. That's a joke? Okay. Never mind. Uh, some of you are getting that now. Second Corinthians 13, we are talking about theology for life uh, in this series, how, uh, what the Christian doctrines are, and then how they impact how uh, we live. So tonight we are talking about the Trinity. We're going to be talking more about the doctrine of God next week. Um, Pastor Tyler will expand on that. And then the week after that, specifically, Pastor Tyler is going to be talking about the holiness of God, what it is, where we see it in Scripture, and why that matters. But tonight, we're, we're zooming in on, on this truth about God, that he is triune. So 2 Corinthians 13, I just want to read verse 14. We're, we're going to have a lot of Scriptures tonight um, as we go through this, the explanation stage. Now, there will be application. There's lots of application to follow, I promise. But as we explain the doctrine of the Trinity, there's going to be a lot of Scripture references. If you would like to have those, um, especially if you have you know, non-Christian friends who have questions about the Trinity or you know people that are in um, uh, cults that deny the Trinity or the deity of Christ, and you would like a list of all the references I'm going to use tonight, I can uh, just email you uh, a PDF of my outline and, and you can have those. So just let me know afterwards if, you don't, if you're trying to write them down you don't catch all of them, I can pass those on to you. So we will be in a lot of scriptures. Most of them will be on the screen, and I trust that will be uh, helpful this evening. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, I want to read this, and then we'll pray. The Apostle Paul leaves these words with his friends in Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Father, as we look to your word tonight, help us to receive it with obedience and faith. Help us to understand it. For those um, in here tonight who have a good grasp 
on the theology of the Trinity. They have a good grasp on this part of you that you've, that you've revealed in Scripture. I pray that you would just strengthen that and that you would show them uh, why this matters and how it's affecting their life and how even ignoring it can, uh, can show up in their Christian life. And for those new believers or uh, believers that haven't studied this yet, that some of this is going to be new information, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the beauty of who you are uh, and that we would walk away tonight not just curious or with um, uh, being uh, provoked in our thinking or just with some new factoids under our belt, but I pray that your people would leave this place tonight in awe and full of wonder at who you are. God, thank you for being God. Thank you for loving us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul gives this benediction, this closing greeting, his goodbye. In a nutshell, we have one of the great and unique doctrines of the Christian faith, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This isn't the only time we see this in one place. Matthew 28, 19, and we're uh, gearing up for missions conference very soon. I'm so excited about that. But um, even as we're called to preach the gospel, that doesn't just mean we're sharing the good news of Jesus. Because we baptize gospel believers as an evidence of their following Jesus in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Missions is Trinitarian. There is no missions without God as, as Trinity. In Ephesians 2.18, talking about our salvation, Paul writes that in Christ we have access to God the Father by the Holy Spirit. So our salvation, our position in, as a Christian, your relationship to God is a relationship to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Galatians 6.4 even about our adoption, you may think, well, isn't adoption really just about the Father? The Father adopts me? Well, it is said that God the Father has sent the Spirit of his Son, Jesus, into our hearts to cry, Abba. In other words, God not only makes us his children on the virtue of the death of Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit to us so we have confidence that we are his children. Even your adoption into God's family is all about the Trinity. And this runs throughout the New Testament. Therefore, it would be a mistake for us to try to talk about the doctrine of God in this series without talking about the Trinity. Because if I'm not talking about and you're not thinking about the triune God, then we're not talking about the Christian God at all. So tonight, what we're going to do, we're going to give a brief overview, uh, kind of a step-by-step overview of the theology of the Trinity, and then we're going to make some application uh, to our lives. So number one, God is one God. God is one God. I'm going to be in a bunch of passages, so hold on and you can look on the screen. If you uh, don't know your table of contents in your Bible that, that well, it's okay. Um, but, but listen to these verses. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Christians did not have a problem with Deuteronomy 6.4 in talking about the Trinity. Early Christians had no problem with Deuteronomy 6.4. They, they weren't uncomfortable around it. They didn't try to get rid of it. And, and, and we know that Jesus himself quoted it. Mark 12.29, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So, so Christians don't get rid of God's unity in order to create three gods. No, Christians accept Jesus clearly taught God is one God. He is one being. The unity of God is clear from the very beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, singular, created the heaven and the earth. And then God's rhetorical question that we have in Isaiah 44.8 could not be clearer. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. In other words, there is no other God beside me. I'm all there is. The scriptures are clear. There is one and only one God. All right, we got that. Number two, God is three persons. So when it comes to his being, what he is, God is a unity. When it comes to his persons, he is three. And and the word trinity, you've probably figured this out, but it's tri and unity kind of smashed together. Tri-unity, three in one. Three in person, one in being. I think it was um, Norm Geisler who, who coined this phrase. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Norm Geisler, whoever said it. Um, it's a good way to kind of remember this distinction. God is one it and, and three eyes. Okay, one it, three eyes, like the letter, the letter I. The Trinity, of course, does not mean that there are three beings. That would be tritheism. Really, that would be polytheism. And Christians aren't polytheist. That's not what Paul and James and Peter were bringing along. They were not introducing belief in three gods. If they did believe in that, uh, the Roman Empire would have left them alone. Because the Romans had all kinds of cultural and local and tribal deities that they added um, uh, to their belief system in order to accommodate all these people that they conquered. So uh, the apostles' message, the early church message, Jesus' message was not, let's add three more gods into the mix. No. Where there's only one God, but this one God reveals himself in three persons. One it, three eyes. The Trinity does not mean that one person goes into three different modes. Uh, This is the heresy known as uh, modalism, that is, the, the idea that sometimes God operates as father, sometimes God operates as son. That is a heresy that was condemned a long time ago for clear reasons. It's not Christian. It's not Christian. The Trinity does not mean that God is only one person with three different names. I heard somebody on the radio uh, years ago talk about how um, we can relate to the Trinity because we're called one thing at work and then one thing at home and one thing with our friends. That is not the Trinity. You may have several different names and nicknames, and you have a legal name and a first name and a last name, but that is not what we're talking about. God is one being in three persons. You and I are not. We are one being, one person, okay? So God is a plurality of persons and a unity of essence. One it, three eyes. All right, why do we get to three persons? Is that arbitrary? Did we just make it up? Who are these three persons? Well, we get to three by looking at what Scripture says about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So let's walk through that quickly. First of all, uh, the Bible teaches that the Father is God. Scripture reveals God as Father. In fact, if you have, uh, let's go ahead and go to Matthew 6. Now, I, I almost didn't want to read Matthew 6. Uh, verses 26 through 32, because I would love uh, to give an exposition of this passage. I love this passage of scripture, but 
for the sake of what we're trying to accomplish tonight, I'm going to not comment on the meaning of this and just, I want you to notice that, that a Jesus uses God and the Father interchangeably. So look at verse 26. Behold, Christ says, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Here the heavenly Father is He is God, he is the father of the son, and he is the one who oversees creation, right? Verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God... So clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God. So you see, Jesus, in talking about his Father, is simultaneously talking about God. God is Father. Now this doesn't mean he's Father to everyone. We are not all God's children, as a country song famously said. He is primarily the Father of the Son. It's in the New Testament that we primarily get this language, and we get it from Jesus, who is not talking about himself, by the way, when he talks about the Father. He talks about his Father, Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things are delivered unto me, Jesus says, of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says that I and my Father are one, Jesus is not calling himself the Father. Or he could just say, I am the Son and I'm also the Father. No, he says, I, and then clearly referring to another person, and my Father are one. That is, they are united. They are in union. They have the same mission. They are both God. That's the idea. Paul specifically talks about God the Father in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Grace be to you in peace. He tells the Ephesians, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The Father, though he cooperates with God the Son and God the Spirit, he is the creator of all things. He is the overseer of all things. He's the one that planned salvation, which didn't mean, if we read the scripture carefully, that um, He decided certain people could or couldn't get saved. His plan of salvation was to send the Lord Jesus to be a sacrifice for sins, and he invites anyone and everyone to repent and believe. This is the architect of our salvation, the architect of creation, the Father. So the Father is God. Then notice the Son is God. The scriptures are clear that Jesus was not just sent from God or a prophet of God or a teacher who had insightful ideas about God. Jesus is God. The references to Jesus' deity are not few and are not obscure. They are many and they are unmistakable. In the context especially of what was already revealed in the Old Testament, Jesus' statements are remarkable and very, very clear. 
They didn't pick up rocks and throw them at Jesus because he claimed he was a teacher. Right? There were lots of teachers and there was nothing dangerous about claiming to be a teacher. It was the other claims that he made. Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah 42.8. I know you're thinking, I thought we we're going to talk about what Jesus said. We will, but listen to Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. God has his unique glory as God. His glory is, uh, well, it's, it's inherent to who he is. And then there is his revealed glory, which is his character sort of put on display. So God is glorious because of his being, because of what he has, and he puts his glory on display when he reveals himself. And God says, this glory, this reputation, this way that I am known in the world, I do not share that with anyone else. All right, you're in Isaiah 42. Now fast forward to John 17, 5. High priestly prayer. It's beautiful. And now, this is, by the way, Jesus speaking. And now, O Father, glorify thou me, with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. God doesn't share his glory with another. But the Son has shared glory with the Father before the world was. Why? The Son is God. In Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus saith the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. I wonder if the Jews were a little bit confused about Isaiah 44. The Lord, King of Israel, says, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That's clearly not David. It's definitely not Solomon, right? We hope it's not Ahab. It's not referring to one of the kings of Israel because, you know, David, Solomon, Ahab, Hezekiah even, they couldn't say, I am the first and I am the last, right? I mean, if they would have, something probably really bad would have happened to them. I mean, Uzzah just did something one of the priests was supposed to do, and he got leprosy. Imagine one of the kings of Israel saying that. But it's his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That, that is the person over God's armies. And this is clearly not an earthly king. There's someone else who is alongside the Lord, who is the Lord of armies, hosts. Revelation 1.17. Fear not, says Jesus to John. I am the first and the last. Psalm 23, 1, many of us are familiar with it. I don't want to take for granted that all of us are, but Psalm 23 states, the Lord is my shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The prophet Joel said that Yahweh would sit on the throne and judge all nations. Joel 3, verse 12, and yet, yet we find Jesus saying this in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he will separate them one from another. Joel says that Yahweh is going to judge, the God of Israel. Jesus is going to judge all nations. Jesus not only, of course, claimed to be God, he also demonstrated that, that he was God, Right? And we see, uh, I, I love, um, when we go through Fellowship 101, going through the Gospel of Mark, we look at those early, the, f- the first five chapters, and look at all the different ways Jesus showed his authority over the world. He showed his authority in his teaching, because he didn't quote other rabbis. He, he taught with authority, it says, and the people were shocked. 
And then he cast out demons. He showed his authority over the spiritual world. He cast out, he tells demons what to do and they obey. He tells creation what to do when he talks to the wind and the waves. He tells people to pray in his name. He tells sickness what to do. He raises dead people to life. And and then finally, he forgives people of their sins. Now, let's be clear about what that means. When Jesus is offering forgiveness of people's sins, he does not say, I hope God forgives you. You should confess your sins to him. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't mess around like that. He says, I forgive you on his own authority. Like, he is the one forgiving. Now, um, to forgive someone, you're saying that the offense was done against you, right? That's what Jesus is saying. By claiming to forgive sins, he is claiming that sin, this cosmic rebellion against God, the posture of our hearts that turns against our creator and hates him and loves ourselves, he is claiming he has the, the ability to forgive that because that was done to him. Jesus is God. And then number three, finally, the spirit is God. The Spirit is God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father, by the way, is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But the Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is given the name of God. In Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter accuses Ananias and Sapphira of lying to to the Spirit. And then later, he says they lied to God. Then 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul, know you not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Well, whose temple are they? God's temple or the Spirit's temple? Well, exactly. They are the temple of the Spirit and the Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit performs the acts of God. Even in creation, Genesis 1-2, before anything is made, the Spirit of God moves on the face of the waters. It's also true in salvation. Ephesians 4, verse 30. We'll come back to this verse later toward the end. I love this verse. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit has the attributes of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, he is all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, he knows all the deep things of God. David said the Spirit is omnipresent. Psalm 139. And the writer of Hebrews says the Spirit is is eternal. Hebrews 9.14. Now, if a person is eternal, omnipresent, all-knowing, is called God, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is telling us the Holy Spirit is God. All right, the scriptures then teach us that there is one God, and that he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we good so far? Okay. Now, some of you are still thinking, I don't know what this has to do with my Christian life. Well, we're going to get into that, but let me say something before we get into that. Um, It is not wise for a believer to only study the doctrines of the Bible that you immediately know are relevant and practical for how you live. Here's why. Whatever insights you discover about a particular doctrine in Scripture are only available to you after you study that doctrine. We're going to talk about some very 
practical things, especially when it comes to two major things, assurance and prayer. And that's really where I want to park this evening. But I didn't come to these conclusions by trying to find verses on assurance and prayer. I, I would have never had these insights. I came to those conclusions as I thought about the Trinity. So if you're thinking, if you're trying to determine what you should study in the Bible and what you shouldn't study, don't start with, well, I need help in this area, or I need wisdom in this area, or I need guidance in this area. I mean, you can go to your concordance and look up the word parenting, and you're not going to find a lot. But if you study the character of God, if you know the story of salvation, if you look on Jesus Christ and gaze at him deeply, you're going to learn a lot about parenting. And you can't get there in a concordance. So it's not up for you and me to decide which doctrines we think are practical and only then give them the honor of investigating them. We look at all the theology given to us in God's word and when we come out on the other end, it'll be very, very, very practical. Very practical, all right? So we're not, we're, we don't judge whether or not the Trinity is worth studying based on how relevant we think it is. We dive into what God has revealed in his word and the relevance will take care of itself. So why does the Trinity matter first? The Trinity matters because God revealed it. And it's about him. You say that's not a very good reason. Well, imagine this. What would you think if a, uh, what, would a what would a husband think? Uh, well, let's say, what would a listening husband think? Uh, what would a listening, empathetic husband think? I think we're good. If a wife said to him, you know, There's something about me that's very personal, very dear to my heart, that you don't know. Something I want you to know that will help our relationship. Something, husband, I've told you in the past, but you've never gotten it. And whenever I start talking about it, you get distracted. And it really, really matters to me that you understand this. Will you listen to me? Now, what's the listening husband that loves his wife going to do? He's going to listen. He's going to listen. Perhaps God would tell modern Christians this when it comes to his triune nature. Listen, I care that you understand my very identity. That I am one God in three persons. This makes a difference in how you see me. It makes a total difference in how you live for me. How you worship me. How you pray to me. I've told you this in my word, but you haven't seen it. You don't get the beauty and the wonder of it. So now will you listen to something that I care deeply about? See, the first reason the Trinity matters or should matter to us is because it already matters to God. Don't you think that ought to be enough for us to give ourselves to it? For us to take it seriously? Even if we had no other application, this ought to be enough to get us to listen. But there is more application. Number two, it's important to think about the Trinity because the Trinity is a humbling doctrine. The Trinity is a humbling doctrine. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is a pride-crushing doctrine. A couple reasons why. Number one, the Trinity is humbling because we could have never thought of it on our own. That is, when we run up against the doctrine of the Trinity we realize that biblical theology is not a matter of just following logic or getting our T's straight or thinking clearly or following what's already obvious to us in our great minds. No. 
When we run up against the Trinity, we have run up against something that we could have never, ever understood through our senses and reason alone. And that's not because the Trinity is a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's not contradictory at all. It is not against reason. It's just beyond it. In other words, this is something very, very, very important to know about God that we can only know through the Bible. Not in any other way. Not by looking at creation. Not by thinking really hard and following our reason wherever it leads us. This is humbling because we realize some of the most central things about who God is can only be known if God just gives it to us. Because we could have never gotten there. Does that humble you? And I hope it does. But then the Trinity is also humbling because it shows us God does not need us. God does not need us. You know, sometimes uh, a struggle that younger people have, whether it's a dating couple or like a pre-dating couple, or even friends, if they only have like one friend and they're kind of obsessed with that, that BFF, um, one of the struggles people have is loving people just because they need them. But you know, God is not like that. Did you know, in, and now a lot of people will say that Jews, Christians, and Muslims all worship the same God, and you can say that if you, if you want, but you should think about this. Did you know that in the Jewish conception of God and in the Muslim conception of God, before God made other beings, he was alone? So that if God was going to experience relationship, if God was going to experience love, if God was going to experience mutual care and interest, he had to create us. But in the Christian view of God, God has had relationship and love eternally. He has had community eternally. So he didn't make us because we were because he was lonely. God, the Trinity means this, at, at, at the very least, it means this, friend, that God doesn't love you because he needs you. So he's not like the obsessive friend or the young couple that's, that are just mad about each other. He loves you even though he doesn't need you. Now, does that do something to your heart? I hope it does. God doesn't need me, but he still decided to create me. God didn't need to make people to experience love because love, if you're a, not if you're a Muslim or a Jew, but if you're a Christian, love has always existed. And yet he decided to make us anyway. Not only did he not need us, he knew that if he made us that we would sin and cost him dearly. And this God who didn't need us to experience love went ahead and made us anyway knowing the cost. Does that humble you? Does that help you reassess your own pride? And how you look at yourself? That this God would do this for us? So the Trinity matters because, number one, it matters to God. The Trinity matters, number two, because it is a humbling doctrine. Two more things and then I'm, I'm done. I believe two vital areas of spiritual health suffer in Christians because they have a weak view of the Trinity. All right? So two last things. Number three, and we'll talk about these each. Number three... Christians with a thin trinity, a thin view of the trinity, have weak, inconsistent prayer lives. And number two, Christians with a thin view of the trinity have weak, inconsistent assurance of salvation. 
Number three, Christians who neglect the Trinity have weak, inconsistent prayer lives. Now, to understand this, we need to think a little bit about what Paul says prayer is. Did you know the prayer is not you starting a conversation with God? (laughs) That's why some of us don't do it. That's a lot of weight on your shoulders, isn't it? You think, I'm going to start talking to God and start a conversation. Well, no wonder you never do it. What a lot to ask. For the Christian, now, there, now in every other religion, that is what prayer is. But no, for the Christian, prayer is entering a conversation that's already going, that we've been invited into. I always hate, you know, if you're going to, with a big group of people to someone's house, it's always awkward to be the first person there. Isn't it a little more comforting, at least for me, because I'm introverted? When there's 20 people there, they're all eating, they're talking, you can just go in quietly, and there's already something going on. You know, that's what prayer is. Prayer is a, is a conversation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we get invited into. So it's not our responsibility to start it or manufacture it or create it. Now, depending on what person of the Trinity we neglect, this could change how our prayer is weak and inconsistent. Some of us pray or don't pray because we have father neglect. Some of you, you imagine talking to Jesus, like your prayer for you is just talking to Jesus, and you imagine him as kind, he's empathetic, he listens, he cares, but really nothing's going to happen. He's not going to do anything about it. He's just this empathetic, kind person who understands you and who listens. But the God the Father doesn't really have any place in what you imagine prayer to be. The creator of the world, the architect of creation, the architect of your salvation, the one who governs and orders all things, the one who rules over all things, the one who exercises his providence over all things. You don't even imagine him in your prayer, so you think prayer doesn't make a difference. It's just talking to someone who listens. Some of us have Jesus neglect when we pray. So we've got the Father right. We know we're praying to the creator of all things, the one who presides over all creation, the one who can do anything. He's omnipotent. We know we're talking to him, but we forget that Jesus is our high priest. And people have told me this. Well, my prayer life is doing bad, David. Here's why. I'm just not living like I'm supposed to, so I don't want to pray. You imagine it's just you and the Father. But it's not. (laughs) It's not. The person who gave his life for you on the cross, the person about whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son, he is well-pleasing to me, he is the one taking your prayers to the Father. So whenever you pray, you're praying to the Father through Jesus. You don't have to have a perfect week in order to pray. You don't have to wait to start that prayer journal or wait to go on prayer walks or wait to have a time in the morning of quiet when you pray until you've got your life put together. Jesus takes your prayers to the Father and whatever Jesus says to the Father, the Father accepts. But see, some of us have Jesus neglect when we pray and that's why you're not praying. Others of us have spirit neglect when we pray. We know the Father hears us. We know we pray through Jesus, but we've totally left out the Holy Spirit. And we think we can't pray unless we know exactly what we're going to say. But Romans 8 informs us that the Spirit is the one who delivers our prayers to Jesus. You're not even praying directly to Jesus. You're talking to the Father through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And this is such good news if you're obsessive with how you put words together, like some of us are, this is such good news. Uh, Paul says, even the groanings that can't be uttered. You know, when you feel a certain way and it's like, and your wife asks you, how do you feel? And you say, eh, like that. 
You just have no words come to mind. According to the Bible, we can even pray when we feel like that because the Spirit takes those, turns those into words, and takes them to Jesus. But if you're not thinking about the Trinity, you're not going to pray when you don't know what to say because you've totally forgotten about the Holy Spirit. And you think, I I know I need to talk to Jesus, but I need to wait until I, I have the right words. No, no, you don't. You don't need to do that. Holy Spirit will help you pray. I'm out of time, but I just want to hit on assurance for just a little bit if I could. Christians who neglect the Trinity have a weak or inconsistent assurance of salvation. Every Every time somebody wants to talk to me about assurance, they want to talk about the memory of their conversion, no one wants to sit down and have a conversation about the Trinity. They just want to talk about themselves. And I'm not, I don't get upset, I don't get rude, but I try to steer the conversation away from the person who's doubting to what the Father and Son and Holy Spirit do in salvation. Because I guarantee you, if your understanding, if how you answer the question whether or not I'm saved is primarily about you and your memory and your recollection, you'll never have assurance. Or you'll have it like, you know, for a weekend and then it's gone. We don't want to live like that. Well, the Trinity actually helps us have assurance. Some of you know Jesus loves you, but you're not convinced that God wants you. That's father neglect. You have forgotten that even though he knew it would cost him his own son, God the Father made the plan of salvation because he wanted as many people as possible to be in his family and to be forgiven of their sins. The Father planned to do that even before sin came into the world. Now, God wants you to be saved. He's not against you. He's, He's for you. He's a Father that loves you. Some of us in our assurance have son neglect. We have Jesus neglect. We forget about Jesus, and now he enters the picture. And you'll, you'll tell yourself, you'll think to yourself, I don't know if I'm saved because I don't know if I've done enough. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. What is the grounds of our salvation? Now, the grounds of our salvation, and this is such good news, is not your repentance and faith. That is the means to connect you to the grounds. The ground of your salvation, the basis of your salvation is not your repentance, it's not your faith. Otherwise, we'd be constantly worried about how good is my faith, how good is my repentance. And, uh, uh, spoiler alert, it would never be good enough. No, Christianity does not teach the repentance and faith of the grounds. They're just the, the, the means that link you to the grounds. What is the grounds? The work of Jesus on the cross. That is the grounds of your salvation. And when you're healthy in your assurance, it's also the grounds of your assurance. What Jesus has done for you. Not your approach to Jesus, what Jesus has done for you. Some of us have spirit neglect. We read Ephesians 4.30 earlier. You know the Father, you know the Son. You're so forgetful about the Holy Spirit that you're worried about your assurance and you don't feel like you have faith. So you may think to yourself, well, I know I'm trusting in Jesus now, but I don't know if I'll trust in Jesus tomorrow. Ephesians 4.30 tells us that he is the seal, waiting for the day of redemption. The Bible also refers to the Holy Spirit as our, as our deposit. Like, if, if somebody's giving you a big gift and they give you a deposit, what does it mean? The rest of the gift is coming. It's on its way. You just have to wait. God gave us the Holy Spirit in part so we would have assurance. And that's why he comes up so much in 1 John. Does the Spirit ever convict you of your sin? Does he ever comfort you when you're in sorrow? 
Let that fuel your assurance. God's not given up on you. Do you think he would send the Holy Spirit and then take him back from you? Of course not. Of course not. Paul tells the Philippians what God has started in you. He will finish it on the day. The Holy Spirit does that. You may struggle with assurance because you're thinking, um, I, know, I, I know I got saved or I think I got saved, but I'm just not very much like Jesus yet. Well, 2 Corinthians 5 2 Corinthians 3, I should say, the Spirit is working on us to make us more like Jesus. He's taking care of it. It's okay. It's okay. I'm going to have the band come ahead. We're, we're done, but I, I want to pray, and then I want us just to sing this hymn together, and, or at least a couple verses of it, and we'll, we'll close.